calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Lightspeed. Greetings, and welcome to the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast. I'm your new host, Jack Kincaid. Never fear, dear listeners, John Joseph Adams is still the editor and publisher of Lightspeed. I'll just be the charming voice you hear before each episode of the podcast. If you don't know who I am, it's quite all right. I don't know either. <laughs> we can figure it out together. It's such a tricky thing, you know. What I can tell you, with a reasonable degree of certainty, is that I've been involved with podcasting since about 2008. That's when I produced an audiobook-audio-drama hybrid project called Hodes Grimm. Experimental intense stuff, so if you ever check it out, know that you're in for a very unique experience. I learned a lot from it. Now, since then, I founded a production endeavor called Slipgate 9 Entertainment, which concentrates on modern-style audio drama. We've been producing a cyberpunk sci-fi series called Edict Zero FIS since about 2010. We're up to 14 episodes now. They're about an hour long, all released for free. I have great fun with it. Now, that's where the bulk of my time goes when I'm not voice acting for other productions, working on new projects that I've taken onto my plate as a producer, and there's a few or doing work for my good friend, John Joseph Adams in Lightspeed Magazine. It's been my pleasure to be involved with the audio component of this magazine from the very beginning, and I'm excited about taking on the extra responsibility as a host of this podcast while we try something a little different with it. It's certainly a new experience for me. Now, up to now, I've been quietly mastering the intros and the outros and mixing it together with the most important part, the stories. Produced by Stefan Rudnicki and his Skyboat Road Company, Inc., the most respected independent audio production team on the West Coast. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, you already know why. The work of this team is second only to the stories themselves, who are the real stars. Now, before we get to our story this week, a few Lightspeed announcements and reminders. In addition to our ebook subscriptions offered via Weightless Books, you can now subscribe via Amazon.com. Subscribers will have every issue of Lightspeed delivered automatically to their Kindle library, whether it's an actual Kindle or one of the Kindle apps. Also, we're pleased to announce another subscription option for those with deep pockets and a generous spirit. Lifetime subscriptions. By purchasing a lifetime subscription, you'll get a subscription that never ends. You'll receive via email every issue of Lightspeed as soon as it's available, which will often be several days ahead of regular subscribers, and you'll get it in both EPUB and Mobi format, so your subscription will be equally compatible with the Kindle and the iPad and the Nook and most other e-readers. Lifetime subscriptions are a great way to support the magazine and ensure that you never miss an issue. They cost $500 and you can purchase them directly from Lightspeed. Visit lightspeedmagazine.com slash subscribe to learn more about all of our subscription options. And lastly, we want to point out that there are several ways you can sign up to be notified of new Lightspeed content. You can subscribe to our free monthly newsletter or RSS feed. You can follow us on Twitter, like our fan page on Facebook, or add us to your circles on Google+. If you visit lightspeedmagazine.com and click on this month's editorial, you'll find links to all of our social media pages. Now that we've got all that out of the way, let's get to this week's story. 
Our first science fiction offering from the April issue is Ruminations in an Alien Tongue by Vandana Singh. It's read for you by Vikas Adam. Vandana Singh is an Indian science fiction writer living in the U.S. where she also teaches physics full-time at a state university. She has published short stories in various anthologies and magazines, including Strange Horizons and TRSF, many of which have been reprinted in year's best volumes. Her novella Distances from Aqueduct Press won the 2008 Carl Brandon Parallax Award. Most recently, she's been a columnist for Strange Horizons, where her reflections on science and the environment can be found. I hope you enjoy the story. If you do, please go to our website at lightspeedmagazine.com and leave a comment. Just click on Fiction, find this story, and then leave a comment there. Or if you'd like to help spread the word, go to iTunes, find the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast, and leave a review or rating there. Well, that about does it for this week's intro. So, without further ado, let's make the jump to Lightspeed. Ruminations in an Alien Tongue by Vandana Singh Bidha on the doorstep Sitting on the sun-warmed step at the end of her workday, Bidha laid her hand on the dog's neck and let her mind drift. Like a gyre moth finding the center of its desire, her mind inevitably spiraled inward to the defining moment of her life. It must be something to do with growing old, she thought irritably, that all she did was revisit what had happened all those years ago. Yet her irritation subsided before the memory. She could still see it with the shocking clarity of yesterday. The great closed eyelid set in the enormous alien stronghold opening in response to her trick. The thick air of the valley, her breath caught in her throat the orange and yellow uniforms of the waiting soldiers. She had gone up the ladder, stepped through the round opening. Darkness, her footsteps echoing in the enormous space, the light she carried casting a small bobbing pool of illumination. This was the alien stronghold considered invincible by the human conquerors, to which the last denizens of a dying race had crawled in a war she had forgotten when she was young. She had expected to find their broken, decayed bodies, but instead there was a silence like the inside of a temple up in the mountains. Silence, a faint smell of dust, and a picture forever burned into her mind. In the light of her lamp, the missing soldier, thunderstruck before the great mass of machinery in the center. That was the moment when everything changed. For her, and eventually for humankind. She had been young then. Ha! She said, a short, sharp sound. An old woman laughing at her foolishness. It felt good to sit here on the doorstep, although now it was turning a little cold. On this world, the sun didn't set for seven years as counted on the planet where she had been born. She knew she would not live to see another sunset. Her bones told her that, and the faint smell in her urine and her mind, which was falling backward into a void of its own making. But the clouds could not be ignored, nor the yellow dog at her knee, who wanted to go inside. There would be rain, and the trees would open their veined, translucent cups to the sky. There would be gyre moths emerging from holes in the ground, flying in smooth, ever-smaller circles, at the center of which was a cup of perfumed rain, and there would be furred worms slithering up the branches to find the sweet moth meat. In the rain under the trees, the air would quiver with blood and desire, and the human companion animals, the dogs and cats and ferrets, would run to their homes lest the sleahawks or a feral arboril catch them for their next meal. Yes, rain was a time of beauty and bloodshed, here at the edge of the great cloud forest, among the ruins of the university that had been her home for most of her life. She got up, noting with a grim satisfaction that, in this universe, old knees creaked. 
She went in with the dog and shut the door and the windows against the siren-like calls of the foghorn trees and put some water on to boil. Rain drummed on the stone walls of her retreat, and she saw through the big window the familiar ruined curve of the university ramparts through a wall of falling water. Sometimes the sight still took her breath away. That high walk with the sheer misty drop below was where she had first walked with Thiru. A very short rumination. When I was born, my mother named me Birha, which means separated or parted in an ancient human language. This was because my mother was about to die. Difficult Loves Diru was difficult and strange. He seemed eager to make Birha happy, but was like a big foolish child, unable to do so. A large, plump man with hair that stood up on end, he liked to clap his hands loudly when he solved a difficult problem, startling everyone. His breath smelled of bitter herbs from the tea he drank all day. Even at their pairing ceremony, he couldn't stop talking and clapping his hands, which she had then thought only vaguely annoying and perhaps endearing. Later, her irritation at his strangeness, his genius, his imbecility provoked her into doing some of her best work. It was almost as though, in the discomfort of his presence, she could be more herself. One time, when she was annoyed with Thiru, she was tempted by another man. This man worked with her. His fingers were long and shapely over the simulator controls, and he leaned toward her when he spoke, always with a warmth that made her feel as though she was a creature of the sunlight, unfurling in the rays of morning. He made her feel younger than she was. She didn't like him very much. She distrusted people with charm as a matter of principle, but he was more than charm. He was lean and wore his dark hair long and loose, and every posture of his was insouciant, inviting, relaxed as a predatory animal. When he leaned toward her, she felt the yearning, the current pulling her toward him. At these moments, she was always stiff and polite with him. In privacy, she cursed herself for her weakness. She avoided him, sought him out, avoided him, going on like this for days, until quite suddenly, she broke through the barrier. She was no longer fascinated by him. It wasn't that his charm had faded. It was only, she congratulated herself, the fact that she had practiced the art of resisting temptation until she had achieved some mastery. You practice, and it becomes easier. Just like the alien mathematics on which she was working at the time. Just like anything else. This freedom from desiring this man was heady. It was also relaxing not to feel drawn to him all the time, to be able to joke and laugh with him, to converse without that terrible adolescent self-consciousness. She could even let herself like him after that. In this manner, she carried herself through other temptations successfully. Even after Thiru's own betrayal, she wasn't tempted into another relationship. After the reconciliation, they stayed together for an entire cycle, some of which was marked by an easy contentment that she had never known before, a deep wellspring of happiness. When they parted, it was as friends. But what he left behind, what all old loves left behind, were the ghostly imprints of their presence. For her, Thiru came back whenever she looked up at the high walk where she had first walked with him. Thiru was the feel of damp stone, the vivid green of the moss between the rocks, the wet, verdant aroma of the mist. She didn't have to go there anymore. Just looking up at the stone arch against the clouds would bring back the feel of his hands. After Thiru, she had had her share of companions, long and short term, but nobody had inspired her to love. And when the man happened along who came closest, she was unprepared for him. His name was Rudrak, and he was young. What she loved about him was his earnestness, his delight in beautiful things, like the poeticas she had set up on the long table. He was an engineer, and his passion was experimental craft designed to explore stars. 
She loved his beautiful androgynous face, how it was animated by thought and emotion, how quick his eyes were to smile, the way his brow furrowed in concentration. That crisp black curling hair, the brown arm flung out as he declaimed, dramatically, a line from a classic play she'd never heard of. When he came, always infrequently, unexpectedly, always on a quest for the woman Ubiri, it was as though the sun had come out in the sky of her mind. Conversation with him could be a battle of wits, or the slow, easy, unhurried exchange of long-time lovers. She never asked him to stay for good, as though it were possible. Never told him she loved him. Now she was pottering about in her kitchen, listening to the rain, wondering if he would come one more time before she died. The last time he had come was a half cycle ago, three and a half years on her birth planet, her mind translated out of habit. There was not much more than a half cycle left to her. Would he come? Pouring her tea, she realized that despite the certainty with which she loved this man, there was something different about this love. She felt no need for him to reciprocate. Sometimes, she would look at her arms, their brown, lean strength, the hands showing the signs of age, and remember what it was like to be touched, lovingly, and wonder what it would be like to caress Rudrak's arm, to touch his face, his lips. But it was an abstract sort of wondering. Even if she could make him forget Ubiri, and there was no reason for her to do that, she did not really want him too close to her. Her life was the way she liked it. The rising into early mornings, the work with the poeticas, which was a meditation in sunlight and sound. Then the long trek up the hill to the now-abandoned laboratory. Returning in the early evening before the old bells rang sunset, although the sun wouldn't set for half a cycle yet, into the tranquility of her little stone house, where the village girl entrusted with the task would have left her meal warming on the stove, just the way she liked it. The peace of eating and reading by herself, watching the firelings outside her window in the temporary watery dark created by the frequent gathering of clouds. In those moments, the universe seemed to open to her as much as it seemed shut to her during the long day. She would stare out at the silhouettes of trees and wonder if the answers she was seeking through her theories and equations weren't instead waiting for her out there in the forest, amidst the ululations of the frenet bird and the complex script of the fireling dance. In those moments, it would seem to her as though all she had to do was to walk out into the verdure and pluck the answer from the air like fruit from trees. That it was in these moments of complete receptivity that the universe would be revealed to her, not in the hours at the simulators in the laboratory. That the equations would be like childish chatter compared to what was out there to know in its fullness. She took her tea to her favorite chair to drink. On the way, she let her fingers brush lightly over the wires of the poeticas that stood on wood frames on the long table. The musical notes sounded above the crash of the rain, speaking aloud her ruminations in the lost alien tongue. Rudrak had left his ghost behind here. The remembrance of his body leaning over the instruments, brushing them as he might, in some other universe, be brushing the hair from her face, asking how this sequence of notes implied those words. Since she had walked into the alien stronghold so many years ago, since the time that everything had changed, Rudrak had visited her nine times. Each time he remembered nothing of his previous visits, not even who she was. Each time she had to explain to him that Ubiri was dead and that he should come in, and wouldn't he like some tea? She went through the repetition as though it was the first time, every time, which in a way it was. A sacred ritual. Rudrak. Would he come? A rambling rumination. Simply by virtue of being, we create ripples in the ever-giving cosmic tree, the Kalpavriksh. Every branch is an entire universe. Even stars, as they are born and die, 
leave permanent marks in the shadow universe of their memory. Perhaps we are ghosts of our other selves in other universes. It was not right for Ubiri to die. There is a lack of symmetry there, a lack even of a proper symmetry breaking. Somewhere, somehow, Ubiri's meta-world line and mine should connect in a shape that is pleasing to the mathematical eye. Sometimes I want to be Ubiri, to know that a part of me did wander into another universe after all, and that separated, the two parts were joined together at last. There is something inelegant about Ubiri's return and subsequent death. Ubiri should have shared consciousness with me. Then, when Rudrak asks, I am looking for Ubiri. Is she here? For the umpteenth time, I, Birha, will say yes. She's here. Instead, this is what I say. I'm sorry. Ubiri passed away a long time ago. She told me about you when she died. Won't you come in? What is the probability that I am Ubiri? If so, am I dead or alive, or both? Ubiri is dead. I am Birha. And Birha is alone. The Discovery When Birha was neither young nor old, when Thiru had already moved off planet, a young soldier volunteered to test fly an alien flyer, one of two intact specimens. The flight went well until upon an impulse he decided to swoop by the alien ruins in the valley below the university. During the dive, he lost control of the flyer, which seemed to be heading straight for a round indentation like an eye in the side of an ancient dome. The indentation revealed itself to be a door, by opening and then closing behind the flyer. When Birha was consulted about the problem, she suspected that the door worked on an acoustical switch. Calculating the frequency of sound emitted by the alien flyer at a certain speed in the close, thick air of the valley took some time, but when a sound wave of the requisite frequency was aimed at the door, it opened almost immediately, with a sigh as though of relief. She volunteered to go alone into the chamber. They argued, but she had always been stubborn, and at the end, they let her. She was the expert on the aliens, after all. The interior was vast, shrouded in darkness, and her footsteps echoed musically. She saw the flyer, in some kind of docking bay, along with a dozen others. There were no decaying alien bodies, only silence. The young man stood in front of the great mass of machinery at the center of the room. In the light from her lamp, which flickered strangely, she saw a complexity of fine, fluted veins, crystalline pipes as thin as her finger running in and out of lacy metalwork. The whole mass was covered in a translucent dome that gleamed red and blue, yellow and green, in the light from her lamp. There was a door in the side of the dome, which was ringed by pillars. My hand. The soldier was staring at his hand. He looked at Birha at last. My hand just went through that pillar. Birha felt a loosening of her body, as though her joints and tendons were coming apart, without pain. If she breathed out too hard, she might fling herself all over the cosmos. Her heart was beating in an unfamiliar rhythm. She put her hand in her pocket and took some coins out. Carefully, she tossed each one in the air. Thirteen coins came down on the floor, all heads. There's nothing wrong with you, she told the aviator. It's the machine. It's an alien artifact that changes the probabilities of things. We're standing in the leakage field. Look, just come with me. You'll be all right. She led him into the light. The round door was propped open by a steel rod, and there were crowds of people waiting at the foot of the ladder. The young man was still dazed. It tickled, he said. My hand, when it went through the pillar. A rumination on the aliens. What do we know about them? We know now they are not dead. 
They went through the great probability machine, the actualizer, to another place, a place we'll never find. The old pictures show that they had pale brown, segmented bodies with a skeletal frame that allowed them to stand upright. They were larger than us, but not by much, and they had feelers on their heads and light-sensitive regions beneath the feelers and several limbs. They knew time and space, and as their culture was centered around sound, so was their mathematics centered around probability. Their ancient cities are filled with ruined acoustical devices, enormous poeticas, wind chimes, and aeolian harps as large as a building. Their music is strange but pleasant to humans, although its frequency range goes beyond what we can hear. When I was just an acolyte at the university, I chose to study what scripts were left after the war. They were acoustical scripts, corresponding to the notes in a row of poeticas on the main streets of their cities. I was drunk with discovery, in love with the aliens, overcome with sorrow that they were, as we thought then, all dead. For the first time since I had come to this planet, I felt at home. To understand the aliens, I became a mathematician and a musician. After that, those three things are one thing in my mind. The aliens, the mathematics, the music. Rudrak's Story A bristle ship, Rudrak told Bidha, is like no other craft. It burrows into the heart of a star, enduring temperatures beyond imagination, and comes out on the other side whole and full of data. The current model was improved by Rudrak in his universe, a branch of the cosmic tree not unlike this one. He did it for his partner, Ubiri, who was writing a thesis on white dwarf stars. Ubiri had loved white dwarf stars since a cousin taught her a nursery rhyme about them when Ubiri was small. Why are you a star so dim, in the night, beyond the rim? Don't you want someone to love, in the starry skies above? Ubiri had to write a thesis on white dwarf stars. As dictated by academic custom in that culture, her thesis had to connect the six points of the wheel of knowing. Meta-networking, undulant theory, fine-jump mathematics, time bundles, poetry, and love. To enable her to achieve deep knowing and to therefore truly love the star, she took a ride on the new bristle ship with Rudrak. They discovered that when the ship went through the starry core, it entered another reality. This was later called the Shadow Universe of Stars, where their existence and life history is recorded in patterns that no human has completely understood. Some poets call this reality the star's memory space, or its consciousness, but Ubiri thought that was extending metaphor beyond sense. The data from the bristle ship told her that this star, this love, had been a golden star in its youth and middle age, harboring six planets, two of which had hosted life, and much space debris. In the late season of its existence, it had soared in largeness, dimming and reddening, swallowing its planetary children. Now it was content to bank its fires until death. After this discovery, Rudrak said, the two of them lived quiet lives that were rich and full. But one day, before he was due to take off for another test flight, Ubiri noticed there was a crack on the heat-shielded viewscreen of the bristle ship. Rudrak tested it and repaired it, but Ubiri was haunted by the possibility of the tiny crack spreading like a web across the viewscreen and breaking up just as Rudrak was in the star's heart. Perhaps that was what she thought when Rudrak disappeared. Rudrak only knew that instead of passing through the shadow universe before coming out, the bristle ship took him somewhere else, to a universe so close to his own that he did not know the difference until he had crash-landed on a planet, this planet, and had been directed to people who knew the truth. They led him to Bidha, who sheltered him for fifteen days, allowed him to mourn and to come slowly to life again. Each time, she sent him back to his universe, as protocol demanded, by way of the alien probability machine, the actualizer. Somehow he was caught in a time loop that took him back to the day before the ill-fated expedition. He had returned to her in exactly the same way nine times. 
His return visits were not predictable, being apparently randomly spaced, and her current and last calculation was an attempt to predict when he would come next. Each visit was the same and not the same. Surely he had had less gray hair the last time. And that healed cut on his hand? Hadn't that been from his last trip, when he was trying to help her cut fruit and the knife had slipped? And hadn't his accent improved just a little bit since last time? They'd had to teach him the language each visit as though it was new, but perhaps it became just a hair's breadth easier each time? She tried to make each experience subtly different for him. She was afraid that too drastic a change might upset whatever delicate process was at work in the time loop. He was like a leaf caught in an eddy, pushed too hard, and the time stream might take him over a precipice. But a little tug here, a tug there, and perhaps he'd land safely on a shore, of this universe, or that one. So far, nothing had worked. His bewilderment was the same, each time he appeared on her doorstep, and so was his grief. It was only these small, insignificant things that were different. One time he wore an embroidered collar, another time a plain one. Or the color of his shirt was different. Bidhau worked on her calculations, but the Kalpavriksh gave senseless, contradictory answers. A Rumination on Timar's Rock I remember when I first came to the university, I used to pass a flat-topped boulder on the way to class. There was a depression on the flat surface of the rock in the exact shape of the bottom of a water bowl. When I met Thiru, he told me that the great Timar Ryan, who had founded the School of Wind and Water, had sat there in daily meditation for three entire cycles, placing his water bowl in the same spot every time. Over the years, the depression had developed. I have always marveled that something as unyielding as rock can give way before sheer habit or regularity or persistence, whatever you might call it. Practice, whether in mathematics or in love, changes things. Sometimes. Ubiri's Arrival It was one thing to realize that the alien device in the center of the chamber was some kind of probability-altering machine. That it was the fabled actualizer hinted at in alien manuscripts, which she'd always thought of as myth, was quite another thing. This knowledge she owed to Ubiri, who was discovered lying on the floor of the chamber, not three days after Birha had first opened the round door. Ubiri was immediately incarcerated for questioning, and only after several ten days, when her language had been deciphered and encrypted into a translation device, had Birha been allowed to speak to her. They said the old woman was mad, babbling about shadow universes and tearing at her silver hair, but Bidha found her remarkably sane. Ubiri told her that she had tired of waiting for her partner, who had disappeared during a flight through a certain white dwarf star, and when he didn't return, she had taken an old model bristle ship and dived into the heart of the star. When the ship passed through the core, she defied its protestations and stepped out of it, seeking either him or death in the shadowy depths of the other reality. Instead, she found herself lying on the floor of the chamber, aged beyond her years. Over the course of four ten days of conversation, Bidha determined that the constants of nature were a hair's breadth different where Ubiri came from, so it was very likely another universe entirely. She realized then that the machine at the center of the room did not merely change probabilities, it was an actualizer, a probability wave interference machine, and the portal inside it led to whatever branch of the Kalpavriksh you created by changing the parameters. But the portal only opened if you'd satisfied consistency checks, and if, as far as the machine could tell, the universe was stable. Somehow the pathways to other universes intersected within the cores of stars, hence Ubiri's surprising arrival. Not long after, Ubiri died. She left a note stating that there were three things she was grateful for. Her white dwarf star, Rudrak, and spending her last days with Birha. A quarter cycle after Ubiri's death, Rudrak came for the first time into Birha's life. 
a rumination on Tiru or Rudrak. There is a rift valley between us, a boundary that might separate two people or two universes. I've been exploring there, marveling at the tortured geometries of its sheer walls, the pits and chasms on its floor. Through them, I've sometimes seen stars. So far, I've avoided falling in, but who knows? One day, maybe I'll hurtle through the layer between this universe and that and find myself a meteor, a shooting star falling into the gravity well of a far planet. What if a meteor changed its mind about falling? Would the universe allow it? Only if the rock fell under the sway of another imperative that lifted it beyond gravity's grasp. But where, in that endless sky, would it find the rift from which it had emerged? It would have to wander, searching, until the journey became an end in itself. And then, one day, when the journey had changed it beyond recognition, it would find the rift and it would stand on the lip of it, wondering, should I return? But I am not a rock. I am a person, slowly ripening in the sun of this world, like a pear on a tree. I am not hard. I am not protected by rocky layers. Still, I cannot soar through your sky without burning. Theories of Probability What the actualizer did was change probabilities. So sometimes things that were highly improbable, like walking through a wall or tossing 5,000 coins so that heads came up every time, all those things could become much more likely. Birha thought that in some sense people had always known about the other branches of the Kalpavriksh. So many of humankind's fantasies about the magical and the impossible were simply imaginative leaps into different regions of the cosmic tree. But to go to the place of your imagining in the flesh? That wasn't possible before the actualizer's discovery. If you adjusted the parameters, the actualizer would tweak the probability amplitudes to make your fairy tale universe. Or perhaps it only opened a portal to an already existing one. What's the difference? So much for you, entropy, for heat death, for death. Make it more likely that you live from fatal cancer than an ant bite. But you couldn't always predict how the amplitudes would work for complex systems like universes, and whether programming in coarse features you desired would give too much creative freedom to subsystems, resulting in surprises beyond imagining, and not always pleasant ones. Thus a mythology had already grown around the actualizer, detailing the possible and impossible other universes and their dangers. One made-up story related how they put in the parameters, the universal physical constants, and the wave function behavior in space and time, and there came to be an instability in the matter of that universe that made people explode like supernovas when they touched each other with love. It was a fanciful lie, but it made a great opera. In her idle moments, Bira wondered whether there was a curtain through which she could slip to find the place that always stays still amid the shifting cosmi, like the eye of a storm. But the foghorn trees were calling in the rain, and she was nodding over a bowl of soup, like the old woman she was. She looked at the veins standing out on the backs of her hands and the thick-jointed fingers, and thought of the body, her universe, which was not a closed system at all. Was there any system that was completely closed? Not in this universe, at least, where the most insulated of systems must interact with its environment, if only very slowly. So was our universe completely disconnected from the others? Or did they bleed into each other? Exchange something? Not energy in any form we recognized, perhaps, but something more subtle, like dreams. She wanted to know what connected the universes. She wanted to step back from it all and see the Kalpavriksh in its entirety. But she was caught in it as surely as anyone else. A participant observer who must deduce the grand structure of the cosmic tree from within it, who must work at it while being caught in it, a worm in a twig, a fly in amber, to feel the knowing, the learning, like a new intimacy, a love. All matter is wave-like in some sense. 
she told the dog. The actualizer generates waves and through interference changes the probability amplitudes. The tiny bubble universe so formed then resonates with an existing universe with the same properties and a doorway opens between them. The dog sighed, as though this was passé, which in a way it was, and wagged his tail. A rumination, dozing in the sun. One day I dreamed I was the light falling off the edge of a leaf, nice and straight, but for the lacy diffraction at the edge. At night I flew into the clouds, to the well of stars, and became a piece of the void, a bit of dark velvet stitched onto the sky. In the afternoon I am just an old woman dozing in the sun with a yellow dog sitting beside her, wondering about stars, worried about the universes. If I could be the tap of your shoe, the glance out of the corner of your eye when you see that man or this woman, if I could be the curled lip of the snarling arboril, or a moat in the eye of a dog, what would I be if I were to be any of this? I am myself, and yet not so. I contain multitudes and I'm a part of something larger. I am a cell the size of a planet, swimming in the void of the night. When they left After the actualizer's discovery, it became a subject of study, a thing to explore, and ultimately an industry dealing in dreams. Streams of adventurers, dreamers, and would-be suicides, people dissatisfied with their lives, went through the actualizer to find the universe that suited them better. The actualizer became a wish-fulfillment machine, opening a path to a universe just like this one, but with your personal parameters adjusted ever so slightly. The complexity matrices shifted just so. This was actually not possible. Manipulating individual meta-world lines was technically an unsolved problem, but tell that to the dreamers. Among the last to go were the people who had worked with Bidha, her colleagues and students. They claimed not to be deceived by the dream merchants. Their excuse was academic. But they went, like so many other people, into the void. The exodus left certain towns and regions thinly populated, some planets abandoned. Imagine being dissatisfied enough to want to change not towns or planets, but entire universes. It was all Bidha could do in the early days to stand there and watch the insanity until finally her dear companions were sundered from her by space, time, and whatever boundary kept one universe from another. Some people came back, but they were strangers, probably from other planets in her universe. She had discovered the infinite branches of the cosmic tree, but it was not hers to claim in any way. She was the only one who wouldn't travel its endless ways. Who knew how long her erstwhile companions would be gone, or in what shape they'd return, if they returned? She was too old to travel, and she liked the pleasures of small things, like tinkering with the tuning on the poeticas, designing and constructing new ones, and sipping the pale tea in the morning. She liked watching the yellow dog chasing firelings. But she also was a prickly old woman, conservative as they come about universes and parameters, and she liked this one just fine, thank you. She liked the world on which she lived, with the seven-year day cycle. No, she wouldn't go. She was too obstinate, and she disapproved of this meddling with the natural unfolding of things. Besides, there was the elegance of death. The neatness of it the way nothing's wasted after. It seemed as though only in this universe was death real. She liked to sit on the sunny doorstep and talk to the dog about it all. Dogs, she thought, don't need other universes. They are already perfect for the one in which they exist. She wondered if humans were refugees from some lost other branch of the tree, which is why we were so restless. Always dissatisfied, going from planet to planet, galaxy to galaxy, branch to branch of the cosmic tree, and maybe rewriting our own life histories of what has been. But we are not all like that. There have always been people who are like the dog, like Bidha, perfectly belonging in the worlds of this universe. A Rumination on Poeticas 
A poetica consists of a series of suspended rods or wires under tension, mounted vertically on a frame. A sounding stick run by an ingenious mechanism of gears, and a winding mechanism not unlike an old-fashioned clock, brushes over the rods at a varying speed, forward and backward. A series of levers controls which rod or wire is struck. While this instrument can be designed to be played by an adept, it can also be fully automated by the mechanism, which is built to last. The enormous ones on public display recount the histories and great epic poems of the people and are made of wood and stone and metal. Some kinds are designed to be played by the wind, but in these instruments, the sounds, and therefore the meanings, are always new and ambiguous. It took me years to learn the musical language of the aliens, and more years to learn to build miniature poeticas. To sound these ruminations, I have had to interpolate and invent new syllables, new chords and phrases, in order to tell my story. There are no words in the language for some of what I feel and think, and similarly, there are sounds in their tongue I'll never understand. We call them aliens, but this is their world. We took it from them. We are the strangers, the interlopers, the aliens. Bidha's Loves So Bidha waits, watching the clouds gather over the university ramparts, walking every day to the abandoned laboratory where her calculations give her both frustration and pleasure. Following the probability distribution of a single meta-world line is tremendously difficult. Through the skeins and threads of possibility that arc across the simulator's three-dimensional result space, she can discern several answers that fit the constraints. A problem with a multiplicity of answers as scattered as stars. Rudrak will be back in 0.3 or 0.87 or 4.6 cycles. Or in 0.0011 or 5.8 or 0.54 cycles. She is out of temper with herself and the meta-universe at large. As she goes down the slope in the cloud darkness that passes for evening, tripping a little bit because she wants to be in the stone house before the rain starts, it occurs to her that her irritation signifies love. For Tiru, for the man who temporarily attracted her, for the lesser loves of all the years after, for Rudrak, for all her long-gone colleagues and students, for the yellow dog who lives with her, for the village girl who brings the evening meal and cleans up in silence, for Timar's rock, for the aliens and their gift to her, for the cloud forest, for that ever-giving tree, the cosmic Kalpavriksh, and especially her branch of it, and for death, who waits for her as she waits for Rudrak. As she thinks this, her impatience at Rudrak's non-arrival dissipates the way the mist does when the sun comes out. In the stone house, she is out of breath. Her chest hurts. There is an aroma of warm food, and the yellow dog looks up from where he is lying and wags his tail lazily. She sits down to eat, dropping bits for the dog, sipping the pale tea. She thinks how it might be good for her to go out, when the time comes, into the deep forest and let her life be taken by a stinging death vine, as is the custom among some of the natives. The vine brings a swift, painless death, wrapping the body in a shell of silken threads until all the juices are absorbed. The rest is released to become part of the rich humus of the forest floor. She feels like giving herself back to the world that gave her so much even though she was not born here. It is comforting to think of dying in this way. The yellow dog will be happy enough with the village girl, and the old stone house will eventually be overcome by the forest. The wind will have to learn to play the poeticas, and then it will interpolate its own story with hers. Only closed systems are lonely, and there is no such thing as a closed system. Three days later, as the bell for morning tolls, there is a knock on the door. There is a man standing there. A stranger. No. It takes her a moment to recognize Rudrak, 
with his customary attitude of bewilderment and anxiety. The change is just enough to render him not quite familiar. More silver hairs, a shirt of a different fashion, in blue with an embroidered sash. He's taller, stoops a little, and the face is different too, in a way that she can't quite explain. In that long moment of recognition, the Kalpavrich speaks to her. The mistake she had made in her calculations was to assume that through all the changes between universes, through space and through time, Rudrak would be Rudrak, and Birha Birha, and Ubiri would always remain Ubiri. But finally she's seen it. Identity is neither invariant nor closed. No wonder the answers had so much scatter in them. The truth, as always, is more subtle and more beautiful. Birha takes a deep breath of gratitude, feels her death only a few ten days away. I'm looking for Ubiri, says this almost stranger, this new Rudrak. His accent is almost perfect. She ushers him in, and he looks around, at the pale sunlight falling on the long table with the poeticas, which are sounding softly. His look of anxiety fades for a moment, to be replaced by wonder. This looks familiar, he says. Have I been here before? This has been a production of Audi and Grammy award-winning narrator and producer Stefan Rudnicki's Skyboat Road Company, Inc., in association with Ted Scott's 50 Nugget Wash Productions and Lightspeed Magazine. To subscribe to this podcast, comment on this story, or read additional stories from Lightspeed Magazine, visit lightspeedmagazine.com. Thanks for listening. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.